Hey everyone, it's good to see you this morning. Got to find a little spot for my coffee and my mask. There we go. I uh, hope you're well. Uh, it's good to be with you. My name is Tony, if we haven't met. Uh, last week we began a series through the book of Ruth. Now I apologize if you were listening at home and you had a hard time hearing. Uh, that's that's our bad. Sorry, we're working on that. Hopefully today is a lot better. Uh, hopefully it stands out that way. So maybe just a quick summary of Ruth, uh, chapter one, what we called Act One. Uh, so there's a, a guy named Elimelech and his wife Naomi. They have two boys. They're in Bethlehem. There's a famine. So they go to this place called Moab in order to figure out how to get food, how to do life. They get to Moab. Uh, their two boys get married to two women, Orpha and Ruth. But sadly, what happens is both Elimelech and the two boys end up, or two men at this point, end up dying, which leaves Orpha, Ruth, and Naomi trying to figure out what are they going to do. So they decide, we're going to go back to Bethlehem. On the way over to Bethlehem, Naomi manages to convince Orpha to go back to Moab, but Ruth takes the stand and she's like, I will not abandon you. It's this unbelievable witness of the covenant love, the hesed, the courage of God in that moment. And she accompanies Ruth, or Naomi, uh, to Bethlehem. Now, one of the things that's important to know about the book of Ruth is that it takes place in the time of Judges. Now, Judges is a book in the Bible. Uh, It's actually right before the book of Ruth. And what you'll see is that it actually is a time of great unfaithfulness uh, in Israel and great immorality. So one of the things that happens is, right, the people, they, you know, Moses and Joshua get them to the promised land, and this is the time of judgment. It should be a time of great optimism, but it's really a great time of disorder. What stands out in the book of Judges, Block says, this guy named, he's a Block, he's a theologian, in the New American Commentary, he writes this, Ruth is like an oasis in an ethical wasteland. So what you have is you have this time of unfaithfulness and immorality, and then Ruth is this time where it's like this example of incredible love and faithfulness. Now, when we get into Act 2 or Ruth 2 this morning, as I read through it this week, I just realized it's surprisingly relevant for our cultural moment and our historical moment today. One of the things we're talking about as as a nation right now is race and how do races get along? How do we live together and honor each other's humanity? And as we dive into Ruth 2, what we're going to realize is that actually Ruth has a lot to say about how do we live together in a way that honors each other and honors our shared humanity. What we're going to see is that the main plot line of Ruth, Act 2, is actually the kindness of Boaz, who is an Israelite, towards a woman of another ethnicity in the person of Ruth, who's the hero of the story. What we're going to see is that Boaz actually embodies the kindness of God to Ruth, a person of a different ethnicity, race, gender, and position of power. And this is actually a huge deal back then. Israel and Moab did not get along. They have tons of animosity towards one another. In the time of Judges, there's a king named Eglon in Moab, and he actually oppresses Israel for 18 years. 
So much so that Israel basically sends an assassin over, kills him, which leads to a war. And it's in this context that we're watching a man named Boaz love this woman across ethnic barriers. And this is huge for us, right? Because as a church, we want to be the kind of people that welcome everyone, regardless of ethnicity or race, socioeconomic standing, gender, power, whatever. We want to be a place that embodies this kind of welcome, this welcome of God. So as we get into Ruth Act 2, I think we're going to actually see a lot that speaks into our present moment. This is how Act 2 Scene one begins. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. Right, so Ruth and Naomi, they arrive in Bethlehem for the barley harvest. This is the first harvest of the year. It takes place in late April. Now, Ruth wants to to glean to take advantage of the timing, but to glean is really not the same as to harvest. The basic idea is that farmers in Israel, they, would, they were commanded in the law to leave behind a little bit of like the edge of their field or to pluck and maybe drop some of the barley so that people, specifically two groups, immigrants, so these are people coming from other ethnic backgrounds, other places, and the poor, so that they could have something to live on. Right, so the law commands this, but we're in the time of judges, right? Everyone's just doing what is right in their own eyes. They're not taking the law seriously. But Ruth, she qualifies on two counts. She is both poor and she's an immigrant, so she's doubly qualified. But because of that, she's also doubly disempowered, right? So she does not have the ability to actually sort of claim the rights that she is entitled under the law. It requires someone to honor the law that she can then follow behind, right? This is why she says, right, in whose eye she finds favor, right? She needs an ally who's going to actually implement the law. Which then brings us to scene two, which is details Ruth's first day in the field. And there's three uh, different sort of conversations in scene two. This is conversation one. This is verses 4 to 7. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem, and he said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheems after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. All right, so what we learn here in verse 4 is that Boaz has, Boaz has created a pretty good work environment. Right, he shows up, he's like, hey guys, how are you? Right, and they're like, hey, good to see you, right? They actually have some rapport, there's some relational buoyancy, buoyancy to this environment. He's also attentive to who's in the field, right? He shows up and he knows, 
Oh yeah, they're all here, but who is that? He's aware of who's in his field. He asks the foreman or the supervisor who the young woman is. Do you notice this though? The supervisor doesn't actually remember Ruth's name. All he says is, oh yeah, that, that woman who's not like us, right? The Moabite, the one who's different than us. Oh yeah, yeah, she came with Naomi. She's one of us, right? She came with Naomi. Likely Boaz has a policy, right? To implement the law. So the supervisor, regardless of whatever his prejudices are, right? He follows his supervisor's lead, right? His boss's lead and implements the law because Boaz, the text says, is a worthy man, right? And this is a big deal. This is the time of judges when violence and unfaithfulness is ripe. And Boaz is someone who is trying to create a context that protects the powerless and the disenfranchised. But what he does next is actually way more staggering. This is conversation 2, verses 8 through 11. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young woman, women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty to go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn? Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should notice, take notice of me since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, all that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. And how you left your father and your mother and your native land and came to a people that, did not, that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. A full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And then he, she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. For you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Now, for us, it might not seem like a big deal that Boaz actually speaks directly to Ruth, but it is. Boaz is actually breaking down huge natural barriers in their context. Ethnic, racial, gender, power differences in order to welcome her, in order to use his privilege to be her ally in this moment. And his words actually reinforce this posture. He tells Ruth, keep close. Right, this is the same word used in Ruth 1.14 when Ruth clings to Naomi. Boaz tells her, cling to the young woman in the field. Why? Well, because men in the ancient world, right, working in the fields, too often did not respect women. And this would especially be true since Ruth was a Moabite. She's of a different ethnic group. Boaz lets her know, hey, we have rules against touching here, right? And the men know it. In Hebrew, this word touching can be translated as striking, harassing, taking advantage of, or mistreating. So in modern terms, Boaz has an anti-sexual harassment policy and an anti-discrimination policy in his workplace. Boaz is telling Ruth, right, you'll be safe here. Right? In the time of Judges, when everyone is doing their own thing, he is saying, hey, we are going to honor the law here and we are going to honor God and you will be safe. Boaz also informs her she'll have access to water. Now, we might just skip over this, but this is actually a pretty big deal too. Presumably, as the day begins, the men who are the workers gather this water at the gates of Bethlehem and then carry it all the way out into the fields. This is for the male workers, 
But Boaz says to Ruth, both a woman and a foreigner, that she can drink this water that his men have gathered, which is extraordinary. He's crossing all kinds of power lines, gender lines, race, and ethnic barriers to include her. And this helps us understand, I think, Ruth's response, right? In the ancient world, power dynamics are a huge, huge deal. Now, it's hard for us to imagine the humiliation of, like, bowing or prostrating us ourselves before another person, I think. It's like, no, we'll do that before God, if anyone. But in the ancient world, this is way more common, right? This is how Ruth expresses gratitude. It's an embodied expression of gratitude. She bows before him. She's so taken aback by the way he is using his privilege and his power to make space for her, especially a man on behalf of a woman, right, an Israelite on behalf of a Moabite. And bowing, right, she's on the floor, she's bowing, she asks him, why are you being so kind to me, right, a foreigner, an immigrant, someone who's different than you? This is really important. Because if you don't pay attention here, I think you'll miss something really important. Why is he so generous? Because he listened to her story. What does he say? Oh, I heard about Naomi. Naomi came into town, we heard her story, and we heard what you did for her. We heard about your courage. We heard about your love for her, that no matter, even though it wasn't safe for you, I'll let that pass. There we go. Even though it wasn't safe for you to come to Bethlehem, you would have been safer in Moab. You risked yourself. You took this courageous posture to love Naomi. You would not abandon her or forsake her. And because he hears this story, he's so generous and welcoming to her. And it's not a pity party. He's clearly impressed with her strength of character. And she is a person of profound courage. And her story speaks to him actually so deeply that in front of all of the field workers there, he actually straight up just blesses her right in that moment. And she's so taken back, she actually responds, right, still bound. She's like, I am so comforted by your actions and your words. I mean, imagine the, the uncertainty that she's experienced, the lack of safety. She's left everything she's known. This is day one in Bethlehem. She's super vulnerable in these fields. And this person uses his privilege, comes by, welcomes her in, and then publicly says, you can be here and tells everyone there, hey, we, do, we make sure to keep everyone safe in the fields. He reinforces the boundaries he's already established. Which then brings us to our third conversation in scene two, verses 14 to 16. And at mealtime, Boaz said to her, come here and eat some bread. Drip your morsel in the wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain and she ate until she was satisfied and she had some left over. When she rose to glean, Boaz instructed his young men saying, let her glean even among the sheaves and do not reproach her. And also pull out some from the bundles for her and leave it for her to glean and do not rebuke her. All right, so Ruth arrives in the early morning. She has been working hard for about six hours. Now it's time to eat. It's lunchtime. This is hard work. 
I remember when I was in high school, uh, one of my first jobs in high school was to work construction. And literally the only lunch I ever remember doing work was that first lunch I had after a half a day of construction. I remember we got KFC. I still remember that lunch, you know, 20 years later. Because it was hard work. And I remember we all sat on the, it was at a, our football stadium. We were redoing it. And I was down on the field. And our boss was up in a trailer, like air-conditioned, and had this awesome little setup. But he wasn't with us. Notice here, Boaz eats with his harvesters, right? As much as he can, he's with them. Now, Ruth, as a foreigner, right, it would be expected that she would be off to the side. So they're all sitting, the food is all gathered, they're all at this table, and Ruth is over on the side by herself. Almost certainly, you know, she arrived from Moab. She doesn't have food. She's probably sitting over there without food by herself as everyone else is digging into this meal. Now, as we read the text, I think sometimes as modern people, we think, big deal. He invited her to join. Like, wouldn't anyone? And and I think that's maybe true in a modern context, let's hope, right? But in the ancient world, this is radical. Because right? eating is in the Near East isn't simply about hunger. Eating together was of great symbolic significance. He's including her in this moment as a woman, as a Moabite, as an outsider into their community. He is leveraging the privilege and the power that he has to welcome this woman into their community. He offers her bread and it says wine, but it's sort of like this wine vinegar. It's mostly like a sour sauce or a condiment that you would dip dry bread into so that you could eat it without your mouth getting dry. It sort of spice it up. Right at the table, he doesn't just say, hey, grab a seat. No, no, no. He says, sit here. And then he serves her. And he serves her so much that she has leftovers. It's super important that we realize in this moment, Boaz is taking an ordinary occasion and transforming it into a profound demonstration of compassion, generosity, and acceptance. Block, in the New American Commentary, he writes, In Boaz, biblical hesed becomes flesh and dwells among humankind. Last week we talked about this word hesed. It's a biblical Hebrew word that English doesn't really capture. It's a covenant word. That means love or faithfulness or grace or loving kindness or steadfast love or loyalty or mercy. And what Bloch, this theologian, is saying is that Boaz, right, through his acts of kindness, is breaking down the barriers that exist in their culture to love this extraordinary woman in a way that God would want him to love her. He is doing what God would do in that moment, in the time of judges, when everyone is doing what is right in their own eyes. Now, in the New Testament, we know, right, the gospel is so clear, is not just for white people or brown people or black people, whatever people, it is for everyone. And here in the book of Ruth, Boaz illustrates that we can all, right, in the spaces we live, 
sow peace and seeds of peace and welcome injustice in ways that embody the kingdom of God wherever we are. Now, this is further established as he addresses all the workers after the meal, right? So maybe there's some side glances at the table, right? People are like, are you guys watching this? Like, is he really including this woman, this foreigner, this person of a different ethnicity into our group? Maybe he hears whispers that are sexist or racist or whatever, or maybe he just wants to make sure everything goes smoothly. So then he tells them overtly, hey guys, not only do you want, I want you to let Ruth glean here, I actually want you to intentionally pull out bundles of wheat and leave them on the ground. And then he says this, and I don't want you to reproach her. Now this word in Hebrew, right, to humiliate or insult her. You can imagine, right, this is an intense ethnic, there's a, a lot of tension between these ethnic groups. And this woman from another ethnic group shows up uninvited, maybe unwelcome. You can imagine some of these upstanding people in their society, in their culture, maybe saying things to her. And in that moment, Boaz says, no. Day one, this is not going to happen. That is not how we do things here. He takes a stand on her behalf. Which brings us now to scene three, verses 17 through 23. So she gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, and it was almost an ephah of barley. And she took it up and went into the city. And her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. She also brought out and gave her what food she had left over after being satisfied. And her mother-in-law said to her, Where did you glean today? And where have you worked? Blessed is the man who took notice of you. So she told her mother-in-law with whom she had worked and said, The man's name with whom I work today is Boaz. And Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, May he be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. Naomi also said to her, the man is a close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. And Ruth the Moabite said, besides, he said to me, you shall keep close by my young men until they have finished all my harvest. And Naomi said to Ruth, her daughter-in-law, it is good, my daughter, that you go out with these young women, lest in another field you be assaulted. So she kept close to the young women of Boaz, gleaning until the end of the barley and wheat harvest. And she lived with her mother-in-law. All right, so Ruth, she works a full day. She works hard. She's not presuming on Boaz's generosity, but her day isn't done yet. Right at the end of the day, it says that she has to beat out what she has gleaned. Now, if you don't know much about barley harvesting, there's three parts. There's reaping. Reaping is where you cut. I think there's a picture here of a whole plant. So you kind of like cut. So you see the stalk coming up. You cut the stalk. And what it does, right, then it comes off, right, that's the, the reaping. Then you thresh it, and now you remove the head of the gar barley from the stalk and the sheath and all the sort of extra straw. And then three, you winnow it, right? This is where you separate the grain from the chaff so that in the end you have these. So after a hard day of work, right, Ruth is presumably using Boaz's threshing floor, she takes care of the, the threshing and the gleaning and all that stuff. And when she's done, most scholars think that an ephah 
is almost 30 to 50 pounds of barley, which is unreal. And what this means is that Boaz's workers listened to Boaz and pulled out all kinds of grain and just put it down for her to gather. They really took seriously his encouragement. Now, understandably, Naomi is super impressed, and she's like, man, you have to stay with this guy. Right? She breaks out on this spontaneous blessing upon Boaz. She says, you have to stay there because you might get assaulted in another field. Right? This is not a safe thing. God has given you this amazing place and this person who is defending and protecting you. Stay there. So she stays uh, from June till early June, from April to early June, about six to seven weeks. Now, there's more we can say here about uh, Redeemer and a few things that Naomi says. We'll get into that next week. For today, I would like to finish and focus on what happens in day one in the field that is instructive for us in our everyday life with God. First, I think it starts with listening. If you think about it, why does Boaz act? Because right? he listens to Naomi's story. He's affected by that story. He is affected by Ruth, who's of a different ethnic group, and how, the, how courageous and inspiring she is. He's affected by her story. Now, we don't know what bias is he carries into the room. We have no idea. We don't know if that convinced him, you know, before he was like maybe a little bit uh, racist. But we know, <clears throat> sorry, I was singing so much in that first set, my throat's a little dry. So we do know that he listens. He listens to that story and that story informs his action. One of the things, though, that I've learned uh, and I think many of us know, is that racism grows when people stop listening. When we stop listening to other people's stories, we just start behaving out of our ethnocentric assumptions. If I'm honest, um, you know, when immediately after George Floyd's death, I was pretty distracted by all the stuff going on with COVID-19 in the church and I didn't give my best emotional and mental energy to the conversation of race in America right away. Partly, I was just distracted. I was overwhelmed by so much going on in my life. And then I texted my cousin. My cousin uh, lives in Chicago, and she's African-American, someone I've known and sort of spent a fair amount of time with through most of my growing up experience. And as I was talking to her, uh, or texting with her, she was talking about how, you know, she's just how painful and hard it has been talking to her two young daughters and trying to explain what is happening right now. And as I was listening to her share her experience, I realized, like, her story started to impact my heart and started to impact my mind, and I started to realize, man, I need, I can't just sit on the sidelines of this. Like, I need to do something. But the truth was, like, it was her story that affected my heart, that shifted my posture, 
And I guess for us today, as you watch at home, like I wonder, who are you listening to? Because my experience is, if we are just listening to the news and people that look just like us, almost certainly we are not going to get a full picture of the conversation that is happening right now about race in America. And the thing is, listening informs action. Right? After listening, what does Boaz do? He acts. He isn't a king or a politician, but what he does have, he's a farmer and he's a landowner, and he has a sphere of influence. And in his sphere of influence, he leverages the privilege and the power that he has to be an ally on behalf of Ruth, who comes into his farm from a different ethnic group, a different gender, a person who was disempowered in that environment, and he stands up for her. He makes sure that Ruth is able to thrive. He lets Ruth glean. He reaches out to her across all kinds of boundaries, right? Race, gender, ethnicity, power. In a cultural climate that is almost certainly biased against her. He includes her at a meal. Right? He reinforces practices within his sphere of influence that protect Ruth as an outsider from being mistreated, potentially from racist, or, racist discrimination or sexual harassment. Now, what strikes me about this story is that every single one of us has a sphere of influence. Everyone does. We can all, like Boaz, we can all listen. In our areas of influence, we can make sure that racism and hatred have nowhere to grow. Right, this is true at Wellspring. This is true in our families. This is true in our workplaces. This is true on our blocks. For instance, at Wellspring, right, the elders, the leaders, the staff, and I are committed to making sure that everyone is welcome in this place. We are committing to make sure that there is no sexism. As much as possible, we are trying to eradicate it. As much as possible, there is no racist discrimination. And wherever possible, we will eradicate it. Right? Because people are coming here to take refuge under the wings of Yahweh. Just as Ruth is going to Boaz, going to Yahweh, and Boaz, as an embodied embodiment of God's hesed, provides a space where Yahweh's wings comfort her, this place is a place where people should be able to come and rest under the safe and welcoming wings of our God. And when we leave this place, we go to workplaces, we go to families, we go to blocks and neighborhoods, all kinds of spheres of influence. And just as Boaz did, we can embody the hesed, the welcome, the love, and the kindness of God wherever we go. It can involve taking a stand. It can involve inviting people that might be excluded in. The thing is, I'll, I'll be super honest, I think we need to do this. But I also think that human efforts are not going to be the thing at the end of the day that end injustice, discrimination, and hatred. I think that is going to be ended by God. And this is why prayer is such an essential part of action. Part of action is prayer. 
Now, as you read through Ruth, you might have the quick impression that, like, where is God? Like, is God a, where is God? This feels like a narrative about human events. When we take a closer look, what we see is that God is behind almost every scene in this book. I love that uh, Naomi, she blesses Ruth in chapter 1. And then the very thing that she prays for Ruth happens in chapter 2. Did you notice that? Ruth blesses, or Naomi blesses Ruth 1.8. May the Lord deal kindly, Hesed, with you. Okay? And then she, Ruth comes back from Boaz's field, and she says this. May he be blessed by the Lord whose kindness, Hesed, has not forsaken the living or the dead. Act one, she prays for God's hesed to be with Ruth. Act two, she praises God for his hesed for showing up on Ruth's behalf and defending her. At the time of her prayer in chapter one, she thinks God has abandoned her. She thinks that she is, she is bitter and that she is hopeless. And all the while, God is listening to her prayer. All the while, God is working behind the scenes so that by the time she gets to act two, God is already in the process of answering her prayer. Now, as many of you know, about a year and a half ago, uh, our church heard that uh, a primarily African-American church, uh, Christian Memorial Tabernacle, uh, was losing their facility in Seaside. So as a church that wants to embody this kind of welcome, we, we reached out to them. Um, and I remember being on the phone with Pastor Gaskins and talking with him about, hey, is there any way we can serve you? And we have this big building. So we said to them, if you want a place to worship, you can worship here. So we gave them, you know, Pastor Gaskins and I chatted back and forth. We got to know each other a bit. And, you know, they've been here for the last 18 months. Right? They have staff space. They worship here on Sundays. Pastor Gaskins and I have developed a pretty good friendship uh, outside of this time. And he has been someone who's just been an incredibly wise and amazing man. So when all this discussion was happening about race in America, the first person I called was Pastor Gaskins. I'm the pastor of a primarily African-American church that partners with us and meets in this place. And I said to, to him, like, hey, can you, can you guide and lead me in this process? Because, you know, as a white man, like, I'll try my best, but there's so much I am blind to. Can you help me? And we talked for a while. And the thing he said to me more than anything is this. He said, churches need to be praying. We need to submit ourselves to the Almighty, to God in prayer. We need to listen to people's stories because then stories affect our heart. We need to be acting in our spheres of influence to protect and defend, to use our privilege on behalf of people that mar might be marginalized. But if we want to eradicate racism from our country, we need to call upon the Almighty, the one who's capable of changing hearts and nations. Right? Prayer is important in part because I think sometimes we don't recognize the spiritual forces that are at play when we tend to focus so much on one another. When we focus on one another, we tend to take our aggression out on one another. Paul tells us to take a stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places, Ephesians 6, 11, and 12. Our wrestling, Paul says, is against spiritual forces of evil that are trying to tear us apart. Prayer is our weapon because God is powerful and God loves all of us. God created all of us, every human being in his image. Jesus died on a cross for all of us. And in the church, we are meant to embody a place of reconciliation and God's hope that one day all of us will stand together, the throne of God, worshiping Jesus from every nation, every economic background, every, uh, every gender, every color, whatever. God will bring us all together at his throne to worship him. God hates racism. And when we as a people cry out to him, he hears our cry. I'm going to invite the worship team up. And what I want us to do in this moment, as we enter into worship, as you sit in your house, maybe you're at your kitchen table, maybe you're uh, on your couch, wherever you are, I actually want you to pray with me. Pray silently, pray out loud, but I want you to pray in this moment as I pray that God would come and heal our nation, that God would come and uproot all discrimination and all racism from people's hearts, from all the systems at play in our nation. Pray with me. Almighty God, we need you. We are powerless. God, without your power, without your ability to change hearts, God, we sit here just helpless and weak. God, we need you. We want you to stand, God, on behalf of our black brothers and sisters. God, give them justice. God, change all the systems that might oppress them. God, we pray that you would uproot racism from every human heart on this planet. God, we pray for an environment where all human beings are honored. The humanity that we are all made in your image, God, that every single human being on this planet and in this country, God, is honored as an image bearer. God, may your justice flow down. And God, as your people, we pray in this church at Wellspring, God, that you would uproot any discrimination any bias, any hatred that we have in our hearts, God, cleanse us. God, we are a broken people. We need your mercy. Come, heal us first. God, open our eyes to your goodness. Open our eyes to your power and your glory in your name, Jesus. Jesus.